Hello and welcome to GEC Important Talks. This is a podcast series presented by the team at Global Education Connection, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing children who are affected by conflict or natural disaster with resources like educational materials and art supplies. As a part of this podcast, we want to talk about important topics related to children, their human rights, and their education. Of course, neither one of us is an expert on these topics. We speak only to our knowledge, personal experiences, perspectives, and opinions, but there are many credible online sources for further information. Today, we have myself, Catherine Slaughterback, and Parker Beck as your hosts. And today's topic is going to be um, the re- recent conference of parties um, that took place in Dubai from November uh, 30th through December 13th. But before we get into that, uh, here's just a quick word about our business sponsorship program. Yes. So we, as part of Global Education Connection, um, we are able to be funded by the generous support of our donors like yourselves um, through grants, plus also corporate sponsors. So that's businesses that want to be able to support the work that we do. Plus, we can also advertise, advertise the business on here on the podcast and on the website. It's a fantastic way to be able to 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 support the work that we do through your business. And we appreciate um, we appreciate that support. So thank you. Yeah, thank you all so much. And of course, we encourage you all to check out our brand new Patreon, which I will link in the description below. So like I said, our topic this week is uh, the recent Conference of Parties, or you probably heard it referred to as COP28, because this is the 28th conference that has um, taken place. It is um, for all of the um, states or organizations um, that are party to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, or UNFCCC for short. The UN loves its acronyms. Um, we, we're, we lovingly refer to it as the alphabet soup in Model UN. So, but uh, this year it took place. This is this has been an annual conference. Um, since the treaty came into ratification in uh, 1994, I believe. Um, the only year that it didn't occur uh, was obviously 2020 due to the pandemic, uh, but it has been a pretty consistent thing. And this year it took place in the United Arab Emirates in uh, Dubai. Um, that itself sparked quite a bit of controversy leading up to the actual conference, um, as well as how the conference actually occurred. So there's a lot to talk about, <laughs> um, but first up, uh, Carter, I know you weren't too familiar, I think, with the Conference of Parties, I think, before we, like, I brought it up. What were your, like, kind of thoughts when you were reading about it? Yeah, so before I started to really research, um, basically, the, the different COP conferences, um, I knew last year uh, they were in Egypt, this year um, Dubai, and then next year they're actually going to be in Azerbaijan. Um, I knew it was a climate-related conference, um, and the topic, of course, is going to be um, trying to curb climate change and how that can be uh, addressed, how that can be implemented um, through a collective approach of different countries. And so with that, I, I think beforehand, it seemed like the COP, uh, COP conferences were more of a way for countries to be able to get together and discuss on how they could implement some of these 
practices to address climate change. And I didn't really see or understand maybe the efficacy of the different conferences. However, I, I do understand that just being able to get together and talk about issues and be able to come to a consensus on agreement that there are issues and that there needs to be some change, I think that's a very good thing. And so I, I, I like the idea that these conferences are able to occur. And I, I think it's a very good thing. Yeah, you know, there's always some kind of debate around how actually effective these kind of conferences are. Like anytime the UN or states get together, everyone's like, oh, you know, what are they going to actually achieve? Um, and that was a big topic of conversation, especially um, with COP28. Um, because, you know, it, it this conference was huge. Like there were thousands of people there. Um, the amount of uh, work that took place to make this conference actually happen. This was like the most, th this conference had the biggest carbon footprint out of all of um, the the COP conferences so far, um, which I know is a, a big, like you're getting together to discuss the environment, but everyone who went there flew there on a private jet, um, which does make sense because it's like heads of state and stuff, but there was still like, you're getting together to talk about the effects that carbon has in our environment and the effects of climate change. Yet, like I said, this conference contributed so much carbon and um, other like fossil fuel emissions that it was kind of, that was a big criticism of it, as well as um, the person leading the conference, um, because the uh, person overseeing the president of the conference um, is <laughs> also the president of um, the UAE's um, state-run oil company. Uh, so it was, there was a lot of arguments over conflict of interest. Um, letters were sent to uh, the European Union and the United States to try to get them to push back and have a new president put in place, um, uh, both of which were ignored. Um, so that was another, that was a big criticism of it, is how effective is it actually going to be when you're, when, with this carbon footprint and with who is in charge? So two things on that. I think the the pushback on the carbon footprint is really minuscule compared to we're talking about nations. We're talking about their their energy policies, their their uh, fossil fuel usage, um, mitigation practices. So I think that's a that's kind of like a, a red herring argument where we're talking about oh ha ha they flew there on their on their private jets, but really like. And looking at other transportation methods, really nothing else is feasible anymore other than flying. Um, so flying to these conferences kind of is the only option, only only really feasible option. Of course, you could do some other ways, but they take much longer. Um, and these, like, time is very important, hence the, the creation of, of air travel, to be able to, to reduce the amount of time it takes to travel. And so... I think just being able to get together with 200 nations is really a feat in a, in of itself. Uh, the second, second point I wanted to bring up was you, you mentioned some criticism about who was the president of, of the, this conference. And it was the, uh, the chief, the chief executive of Dubai's uh, oil and gas company. And, but I think these are the exact people that we need to have in these conversations because like, 
UAE, they exported $58 billion worth of uh, crude petroleum uh, last year. Now that's half of their, oh, their, that's half of their total revenue. So I mean, these countries are very reliant upon the export, the sale of fossil fuel products. So these are the people that we actually need to have in these conversations because they are direct stakeholders. Some countries like maybe in um, some countries like uh, let's say the Dominican Republic, they are not an oil exporting country. So their their practice, their idea for how they can mitigate the uh, the, fo the fossil fuel emissions is not going to be anywhere near the scale that United Arab, Arab Emirates and some of these other Middle Eastern countries are going to be implementing. So these are very important stakeholders, and I think it's even more important to have them at the table. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. They should, of course, be at the table. The, 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 con the, the controversy wasn't that he was necessarily in attendance, but that he was the one leading the conference. I think um, concerns over how much that would silence, you know, actual discussion or work to combat or move away from fossil fuels, because obviously they're profiting off of this, you know, um, and the country's, the country's reliant on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think it was more of a criticism of, of that, not necessarily that he was at the table, though this was the first time um, that an oil executive had been invited into like these discussions, which again, sparked controversy because of, you know, just the nature of these things, like ha due to the pressing nature of the climate crisis, I, I think a lot of people are getting frustrated um, that more proactive work isn't going or isn't being done to combat fossil fuel emissions, to cut carbon emissions, um, to move away from these things. And I, I think that seeing an oil executive at the table isn't necessarily the look that a lot of environmentalists wanted um, because, you know, like, like you said, it, like thousands of people were in attendance there. Every single party to the UNFCCC was there. Uh, that includes all um, UN member states, as well as um, unofficial states like Palestine, um, and uh, organizations like the European Union. So like there are a lot of people there. And while of course these conferences don't necessarily bring about concrete steps because it's not necessarily a strong suit of international agreements, um, they are a way, like you said, to get people together to talk and to try and figure out a plan forward. Um, but I think just growing frustration on how slow um, this is this is being especially given like we are not set to um, meet the Paris agreements um, like cutting of um, heat increases like capping it at I think I think it was two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels like we are not expected to uphold that um, which is going to be incredibly bad <laughs> like to, to put it um, in layman's terms bad. Um, so I think there's a lot of growing frustration about that. And just seeing an oil executive at the table wasn't, I think, the look that this conference needed, especially given that Biden wasn't there, sent someone else because of um, budget. He, what was cited was, of course, uh, the conflict between Israel and Hamas, as well as internal 
um, monetary reasons within the U.S. because we had that whole debate over the budget going on in November. Um, so I, I think that was also kind of not the the PR that the that COP needed. And you know, I know people are like, "Oh, who cares about PR?" But it's a it's a it's really important, especially um, in sensitive subjects like this, how it's going to be perceived not only by citizens like here in the U.S. or abroad, but as well as government officials and international organizations who look to these conferences as kind of guidelines on what they should do next. Yeah, I think the public relations issue is, is that definitely stood out to me when I was reading more about what happens at COP28. And I would say that this isn't really necessarily a, a climate conference, but it's really an energy policy conference. Because everything they were discussing relates to energy production and uh, consumption. So you're talking about fossil fuels, and fossil fuels is, is really the, the main source of energy for almost every country around the world. Plus, it also creates the manufacturing capacities and capabilities that produce all of the goods that we use in our daily lives. And so really, the, this conference is all about energy production and consumption. So I think that they, they really need to shift their, um, this, these, these, the next COP29 conference in Azerbaijan really needs to shift their, their wording and talk about, because this is really all about energy and how it, energy can be made cleanly and how it can be dispersed and utilized as cleanly as possible. While With, energy was a, a big part of the discussion, they did talk about other stuff and just didn't get the same tension that energy did. Like they talked about um, food systems and public health and a variety of other subjects, but that was kind of just like an, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's important. Anyway, energy, um, because, because of energy's role in our economy and our reliance on fossil fuels and how much that singularly is contributing to global warming, that was the main focus of the discussion. Um, so I think that's what most people have heard out of COP28, but that wasn't the only thing that was discussed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seemed like it was the, the main takeaway. It was all related to energy, though. Like every everything that I read from, from articles really doesn't talk about any kind of like agriculture, agricultural policies that they discussed, um, or even like, like healthcare, but it seems like it's all energy related. I mean, there's nothing wrong with talking about that, but I just think that they need to kind of rebrand and say, this is really the focus. Now, looking back at, you said that there was uh, some frustration at, to, at the speed at which some of these policies are being implemented um, by certain countries. And there's not going to be um, a, any kind of speed put behind these policies unless there's an economic incentive. Well, in terms of speed, like what really gets people motivated to to do something quickly it's either going to be the carrot or the stick approach now it's really really difficult if you're going to be implementing a stick approach towards energy policies especially when you're dealing with very large countries um lots of money big big companies that's going to be very very difficult and we've seen that there's lots of pushback with lobbying and, and other efforts when you try to implement the stick approach the other option is the carrot approach there needs to be an, a monetary incentive for companies to be able to burn fossil fuels um, as cleanly as possible, to emit 
as few emissions as possible. And we see some of these practices, but it, that's very, very difficult from what we've seen, because what would be the economic incentive to burning uh, cleaner, cleaner fuels? There really isn't one, because the whole idea of burning fossil fuels is that right now it's cheaper, easier, and faster to do than looking at some of the alternative renewable sources. So one possible solution might be to make nuclear uh, energy um, cheaper. There might be able to provide more incentives because then that then that makes um, the building of a coal-fired power plant less attractive. If you're if there's currently incentives for constructing a nuclear power plant, and you don't need to. There's been technological advances where we don't need to actually create these large plants and where we can actually do smaller nuclear plants and smaller nuclear plants greatly reduce the uh, possibility of of issues that could arise. So that is one option. But I really think that countries need to work on the incentive structure for energy companies to be able to adopt. And that's how we're going to see these things speed up. Yeah, actually, nuclear energy was one of the things discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the United States, along with um, several other countries, did commit to um, producing more nuclear energy. Uh, a big problem with that, though, um, is the public perception of nuclear energy after, you know, um, Chernobyl or um, the... Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's the the not in my backyard idea that you know nuclear energy is fine but not here i don't want it here um but the problem with that is that that's a widespread idea held so then you're like okay if no one wants it in their backyard in the us where do we put this well and um, that's that's where we need to work on educating people and saying like these are issues that happened decades ago when when and there's been major technological advances since then i mean of course there was fukushima which was a result of an earthquake in japan but that's where the whole idea of creating much smaller or micro nuclear uh, nuclear plants that's going to be a much safer option and also you can talk to people and say okay if you don't want a nuclear power uh, nuclear power plant in your backyard how about a coal-fired power plant like People need energy for our, our, we need energy for our daily lives. And with the current technology, I think nuclear is, is the best bet because it's, it's the cleanest and it's also probably one of the, it has the greatest capacity to be able to support as, as much energy as, as possible with as few resources as possible. Yeah. But I mean, in nuclear isn't renewable. It's still a non-renewable resource because you're mining uranium. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then you, most of the time you have to, um, I'm not exactly sure of the science behind it, but there's like two different types of uranium. And the one that's mostly mined is not the kind that you need for nuclear energy. So you have to change that uranium into the uranium you actually need. I'm not a science girly. Don't ask me specifics, but I know it's a whole thing. Um, but if Thank you look you, at environmental total, science class, if you look at the total amount of inputs required to be able to create the same jewel of energy for, for and looking at the different methods to create that jewel of energy, nuclear requires significantly less by quite a lot than any other option. Um, and, and that's where I think it's going to be the best option. Uh, looking at the non-renewable sources. Nuclear is by far the most efficient. 
Yeah, I, th- I definitely think that nuclear can be a stepping stone, hopefully, towards other renewable energy practices. Because um, like you said, I think that's going to be the fastest transition kind of for the most uh, like seamless kind of transition away from coal and natural gas and petroleum. Uh, but I personally would rather see wind or solar or hydroelectric energy um, or even like geothermal, mm-hmm. pretty much anything except fossil so, fuels. In- but, it's, but it all depends on where in the globe. So, so this is, we're all going back to energy at this point. It's less about yeah. talking about climate. And it's all talking about energy and, and how energy can impact the climate. And so it all depends on where in the globe you are. Like if you go to Iceland, they're almost entirely geothermal because they've got that, the capability with their geography. Um, but if you look at some parts of the United States, there, there, can't, there can't be uh, geothermal, however, there can be solar in some parts of the United States. There can be wind. So there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all, but it's what can countries do to wean off of fossil fuels for their energy usage and start implementing some cleaner practices. And right now, that seems like it's a combination of using renewable and non-renewable and trying to find a good mix of those two because we don't quite have the capacity yet for battery technology that's going to be cost effective for countries to be able to implement plus you look at the different manufacturing requirements of battery technology so using fossil fuels there's energy plus there's also manufacturing like basically almost everything that we use right now i'm looking in in both of our our images but it's almost all fossil fuels so if countries are able to transition away for, from fossil fuels for energy, but possibly still keep them from manufacturing, that's a really great step. I mean, it, it's, it's really not feasible in our daily lives right now to try to take away fossil fuels. Because um, I mean, let's say I look at my windows, they're made out of vinyl. So I mean, there's so much in construction in our daily lives that requires fossil fuels, but we can start working on maybe our, our electricity being only renewable or 80% renewable, 20% non-renewable. And I think these are all great stepping stones that different countries from a result of COP28, they seem like there's a consensus that they all agree that they need to transition away from fossil fuels. So I think that's a, that was a really great takeaway from this conference. Yeah, you know, like you said, with how dependent we are on fossil fuels, like it's it's not going to be an overnight transition. This is something that's going to take years, mm-hmm. which is why, again, like there's the frustration of, okay, well, you need to kind of, can you can you say something concrete about what your plan is going to do? Because if you ever look at the actual wording of these international documents, they're like, heavily suggests, yeah. encourages. Yeah. It's nothing like we require you to do this because that's not how... The international world works. You can't really require states to do things outside of treaties. And treaties are very hard because they supersede, you know, um, like sovereignty, which is a big deal for uh, states because they don't want like outside powers influencing their own state, which is why, like I said, if you check any international document, most of the time they're just like, we heavily encourage you to uh, let your citizens have human rights. Uh, we're not going to require it, though. Um, so, well, so that that goes back to the carrot and stick approach. The yeah. the requirement that is a stick. 
that is that is a negative in, in for, enforcement tactic. But if you go towards as a, as a collective, we all agree that we need to transition away, and it's up to the individual country to make that happen. That's more of a carrot approach, because some countries can boast that hey, we're doing a great job of transitioning away from fossil fuels, and that's a major PR win for those countries. Yeah, but then there are countries who are still producing an insane amount of fossil fuels and aren't going to care about that PR. Like the United States is still extremely heavily reliant on fossil fuels. China is extremely heavily reliant on fossil fuels. Uh, all of the OPEC um, countries who export a ton of this oil are obviously not going to say, yeah, you know, I think moving away from fossil fuels is the best thing we should do right now because they're not necessarily going to think about that. They're going to think about their own personal economy. Um, I, I should say OPEC stands is it, it's an international organization, the organization for petroleum exporting c countries. If you heard anything out of COP28, it was probably that OPEC was like, uh, we cannot support anything that explicitly says no more fossil fuels, which is why all of the language got super watered down to we encourage states to move away from fossil fuels, uh, which where, all of the small island developing states were not happy about. Uh, that's you where can imagine comes, why. It all comes back to money, though. I mean, if you look yeah. at if you look at the UAE, they're a perfect example half of that country's money that they bring in each year is from fossil fuels. So it, so you need to create an incentive structure whereby the technology is cost effective and you can start implementing because I mean, they're in a great position globally uh, for solar, not necessarily wind. They're in a great position globally for um, nuclear. They're, I, I don't know about coal because I don't think uh, coal is gonna be very um, good like in terms of mining in that area of the world. So you look at incentive structures. And so OPEC currently, their incentive structure is on cheap fossil fuels. And un until that changes, they're gonna have the same stance. They're going back, it, until there's a different incentive structure, until it's cheaper to have a, a different source of energy, the, these countries are gonna operate in their best interest. It's just human nature at that point. And so that's why they're being so defensive about their their source of income. Yeah, um, we, we can say we can say it's unfortunate. I agree, it's un it's unfortunate. But I understand why they're they're providing pushback. I don't I don't blame them for that. I mean, if you take away half of someone's income, that's gonna that's gonna definitely hurt, and they're gonna try to fight against that. But if you offer someone a, a different way to make the same money or more, or month or 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 more money, then they're gonna take that. Um, especially if they can do it for, for cheaper and faster than the, what they currently do. So uh, I might not agree with, with how these countries um, are, are, are getting the, their revenue um, with fossil fuels, but I understand why. Yeah, you know, that's actually a big reason why um, states like UAE are kind of creating these tourists touristy cities because they see the writing on the wall they know that eventually at some point they are going to have to transition fully away from fossil fuels that's why they're trying to create these touristy cities in their countries so then they have a second source of income like i like dubai like is mm -hmm. extremely like technologically advanced and like made it's also westernly pretty it's also became yeah. a big global yeah. hub. So, I mean, at this point, we've got New York, London, Dubai. Yeah, so it's it's not like 
they're they're completely oblivious to this. I think it's just they are trying to figure out secondary sources of income before they commit to anything at, while they can still profit off of this as long as the rest of the global community is also simultaneously digging their heels into the sand and not wanting to, to transition faster. Um, but that's why I, I think a, a lot of the reason is because um, like, at, at least here in the United States, I don't think there's been a lot of experience with most people here and the effects of climate change. Now people are going, oh, this is like the hottest December we've ever seen. We didn't have a white Christmas. Oh, that's global warming. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, small island states that have seen the seas rising for years or in Alaska where uh, like the, the the permafrost is melting and stuff, they've been experiencing this longer. So I think as as long as climate change continues to get worse and more people continue to be affected by it, then people will actually say, oh, we have to do something about this when the real time to do something about this to prevent these things from happening was back in the 70s and 80s when we knew climate change was going to be an issue but didn't want to do anything again because of the economy. And that's where, to me, I, I always go back to what's going to be the incentive structure. And because we can't, we can't stop or retract from progress. That's, that's not what people are going to want to do. But if but people will want to progress technologically and make their lives better, easier, if there's a certain incentive structure to do so. Yeah, that's why a, a big problem is that governments themselves need to be the ones offering these incentive structures, at least within their countries for companies or um, individuals. Um, like I know certain states have programs in place to in, like to subsidize the cost of solar panels um, for homes or for businesses. If that became more widespread or even like a more well-funded federal program, I could see that helping transition consumers away from fossil fuels because like as long as consumers require this type of energy for to heat their houses or so we can record a podcast then these companies are going to have people who will buy what they are selling. So essentially the government, I think, needs to come in and help consumers transition away from that because most people don't have the money to do that themselves. Like solar panels can cost between thirteen dollars and $18,000 to just implement in a home. I don't know about you, but I know my family doesn't have that kind of money just lying around that we could do that. So it's not feasible, especially for people in rural or low-income areas um, who are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change to sustainably transition away from the thing that's causing all of this damage in the first place. Exactly. And you brought up a fantastic, fantastic example of the incentive structure with solar panels. And you can look at low or no interest loans on these panels. And of course, that's going to be underwritten by the government at that point. No bank is going to underwrite a low or no uh, interest loan. However, if it's guaranteed by the government at that point, then they will. Um, the other option is going to be the uh, the tax incentives. And I know that's a, a major reason why people have um, installed solar panels and also purchased electric vehicles is for the tax incentives, because there's an economic incentive to do so. And if you look at the math, you can say, hey, over the long run, our current electric bill is X amount, but 
if we have solar panels, our electric bill is going to be X minus one, X minus two, or it's going to be lower. And therefore it's in our best interest to do so. So all it all comes down to how can people live better, cheaper lives? Yeah. And, you know, at least here in Pennsylvania, I know we have initiatives in place to create green energy jobs, hmm. um, like the promotion of like bringing clean energy companies, um, to Pennsylvania, but I think a big problem with that is that they're create they're trying to create jobs when there isn't a market for them because, like I said, clean energy is so out of reach for so many people because of the cost that I think, sure, that's a great idea in itself, creating green energy jobs, encouraging more green energy companies to come to different states, but you need the market for them. Yeah. And I think that could also be applied to other countries around the world, too. Yeah, and if, if there's if there is demand for greener greener energy options, then the jobs will follow. That's just that's just the way that the free market will work. If there if there is an incentive for people to have uh, green energy, there won't be green energy jobs. There's going to be more coal jobs. There's going to be um, more oil drilling jobs, and people will gravitate towards those uh, sources of income. Yeah, or even. Um, another thing, because obviously it's easier than necessarily getting consumers to do it, where if the government themselves, like on all of the government buildings, whether they're federal, state or local, like transitioning those to solar energy, um, any of the military bases, whether at home or abroad, transitioning those to solar energy. So there are more ways that the government could be doing something. I just because of how much it would cost to do that, they're not. And that's where that's where maybe the government should instead be incentivizing through grants for uh, research and technology. I mean, that's one of the one of the ways that Tesla became the com uh, the company that they are today is through original grants um, from the Department of Energy. Um, I think in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and so I mean that's a great example. Of course, there were lots of companies that didn't make it out of that time, but the possibility that you can have a couple companies come out and make some fantastic products that change, uh, change people's lives. That's, that's great. That's fantastic. And that's the whole idea behind incentive structures. Yeah. Because like, like you said earlier, energy is only one part of the discussion though. That's what gets brought up most. Mm -hmm. um, obviously electric cars or solar or wind will be great, but we also have to think about how we can, change other aspects uh that are contributing to the issue like plastic plastic pollution is a huge problem um because like plastics like once it's here it's around forever we are all currently swimming in microplastics right now um so figuring out a way to more sustainably deal with that work to create another kind of product that could replace um plastics would be uh really important because like we, we've replaced things before like the montreal protocol which um outlawed certain chemicals like cfcs that have been used in things like hairsprays or refrigerators um they got banned because of what they were doing to the ozone layer they were depleting the ozone layer and creating this hole which was allowing uh, more solar radiation in which uh, sure, while that hole was letting more greenhouse gases out, it also caused more cancer and more cataracts and people as well as other environmental impacts. So there are 
and and then that like corporations created new chemicals to replace those that don't damage the ozone layer. So there are ways that I think if we could incentivize the creation of other products to, like I said, replace things like plastics or like we've seen with moving towards electric cars or the production of solar or wind energy, like we have to replace more than just our energy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Another part of the uh, COP28 conference I want to talk about was what's your opinion on the loss and damage fund? That's the the fund for like big um, like states providing money for states like smaller developing states that are affected by climate change, right? Uh, not quite. It was more of just a an overall insurance policy um, whereby everyone is pitching in, but not everyone pitches in the same or proportionally the same. I mean, we saw we saw certain countries that pitched in more than others, obviously, um, but there were some surprises as to some countries that pitched in a lot less. Um, but it's it's like the overall insurance policy that was adopted. So this loss and damage fund, um, it was tabled last year in, in Egypt and it was approved this year. So that, that's a big win to be able to recognize the need for uh, basically insurance against um, natural natural disasters, climate-related natural disasters, and um, what, what we're seeing. I think it's a great idea. I just I don't know how long that will be maintained. You know, because I, I think Germany contributed like a hundred million, but then the United States only contributed like twenty five million. Um, and just because a country pledges something doesn't mean that they will keep that pledge. Yeah. You know, so actually, even if all of these states put the money forward now, who's to say that that money will continue to come in in the future? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so looking at the the, the con- uh, contributors, the UAE pledged a hundred million. Um, Italy and France promised uh, 108, the United Kingdom 50, the United States pledged 17.5 million. So pretty uh, pretty surprising there. And China's uh, pledged 10 million, respectively. Um, this was a lot. So the total pool of what they have is significantly less than what, what the estimates are of the total costs of climate-related um, destruction each year. I mean, you look at crop crop loss, um, construction costs, and all, and all of that. Um, so it looked like they got a total of about $700 million. Um, however, there's estimates that uh, $400 billion is the amount that is caused by damage um, from climate change each year. Um, so way, way, way off the, uh, the target there, but it started the, started the fund. Yeah, but these funds tend to be created and then nothing really comes of them. That's that's the problem. Like I said, just because all of these countries are pledging the money this year doesn't mean that they will pledge more money next year or the year after that. And like you said, when the total monetary amount each year is like $400 billion and they only got $700 million, sure, it'll help some, but then how do you determine which state that money goes to? That's where that's where I think it, it I think it needs to be kind of like w- what there is with NATO. It's a percentage of your overall budget that you need to contribute towards the insurance fund, and that way it's proportional based off of different countries and their sizes. The uh, the other part is you look at construction costs. 
in the United States compared to that of in let's let's use an example of some of the uh, the island island nation states. Construction costs are going to be significantly less in in those those countries compared to the United States. Um, so insurance insurance money that would come from this this loss and damage fund is not going to be as effective to certain developed countries as it is to developing countries. Yeah, but I think that there are just so many states that need help that it'll be hard yeah. because you know there's all of the small island states that are going to be underwater soon that have to figure out where their people are going to go um or states we've talked about in the horn of africa that are experiencing famine and drought you know um so what do you what do you do when faced with i think two impossible scenarios because no matter what people are going to suffer I think those impossible scenarios would not fall under the scope of this loss and damage fund. I think that far exceeds the capabilities of what this is intended to do. I see, I see this as more of a basic insurance policy, not something that's going to cover like a total loss. Something that's not going to cover something that's catastrophic. Well, it's just determining those lines. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think overall, it's a good thing that this was established because it gets the, gets the conversation going. It, it, it actually makes something concrete rather than just a discussion. And I'm all about all about taking action rather than just talking into infinity. Yeah. Despite us having a podcast. Hey, you know what? <laughs> but what we're doing is we're having discussions and also we're working on the, our nonprofit as well. So what we yeah. do is not just discussion, but we actually take action. And we've had some fantastic results this year. We've helped over 590 kids in some of the the hardest and most difficult to, to get to places in the world, and I'm, I'm very proud of that work that we do. So we're not just talk. Yeah, yeah. Despite talk being in the title of the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I'm always here to uh, lighten the mood. Yeah. So I mean, look, looking looking forward, I think overall. I have a, a, a good, I have a good, uh, I think there's a good takeaway from COP28. Um, all, 200, all 200 countries um, signed um, that agreement um, saying that there, there needs to be a transition away from fossil fuels. Um, it's the onus of the individual country to make that a reality. And the development of this loss and damage fund was approved. And I think that's, that's a great first step. Um, and we'll see where uh, COP29 in Azerbaijan um, picks up, and we'll see what the result is of it. Yeah, you know, I, I don't like necessarily being a negative Nancy, but I feel like I have much more of a kind of pessimistic view on this stuff, which I feel like I've kind of already explained why I feel that way. So I, I will say that I encourage conversations like this to continue because I think just the act of getting states together to discuss this is huge. Just because something isn't developed in COP28 or 29 doesn't mean that those conversations can't then lead to further conferences and further talks, especially um, in the future, because like we've talked about the sustainable development goals before, uh, they're set under the 2030 agenda. After 2030, they have to create a new one uh, with new goals and new work. So hopefully these kind of conversations that they can think back on and reflect on 
and hopefully build a better agenda for the future um, because no agenda is perfect. You know, the sustainable development goals came out of um, the Millennium Development Goals. So we'll see where uh, the next ones take us. Um, but I, I don't necessarily, um, I, I feel like have the same kind of optimism that you do, but I still really appreciate that these conversations happen and um, look forward to seeing what developed out of them in the future. Yeah. And, and that's where we need to be optimistic. Um, I mean, the whole idea of getting together with all of these countries is because there was optimism. I mean, if, if countries were pessimistic, they wouldn't go. Yeah. And that's just that that's, that's reality. And so, and, and so overall, we see great optimism with 200 countries uh, signing an agreement. And so that, that's, to me, that's a win. Yeah, absolutely. You want to I, I, I just have to convince you of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I think we will wrap up there, but before, uh, we do. Um, here's just a quick word about our coloring book. Yes. So um, we have on Amazon a coloring book. It's the same book that we send around the world to, uh, to kids um, in Ukraine, in Turkey, Mexico, uh, here in the United States. It's a fantastic book with 30 animals. Um, you can draw these different animals that are black and white. And it also has facts about these animals as well. Um, plus, it provides some extra paper in there to be able to, to draw whatever, uh, whatever you'd like. Uh, it's a great gift to be able to, to give to kids. Um, plus, it's able to continue contribute to the, uh, the work that we do. So if you'd like to, go ahead and go on Amazon and uh, purchase our coloring book. Thank you. Yeah, and we, of course, like uh, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, encourage you all to check out our brand new Patreon. Um, I also want to encourage everyone to check out our um, shop that we have on our website. We have a lot of really great products there that I encourage you all to check out. Um, so thank you all for joining us. This has been GEC Important Talks, hosted by the team at Global Education Connection. Uh, you can find us on our website, www.globaleducationconnection.org, to learn more about who we are, what we do, and how else you can help support us. You can also find us on all social media platforms um, to follow along with the work that we are doing and get uh, more information, um, like I said, that you can also find on our website. So thank you all for joining us, and we hope to have you back next week. Bye. Bye.